Um, what we have in Acts 2 is a historical snapshot of the early church. Uh, and so we have a kind of a, a little bit of a time machine heading back to what, well, what did the first followers of Jesus do when they gathered together? Now, we need to be very careful uh, when we look at this to turn a description of what happened into a prescription of what should happen. We live in a different time and a different context. Uh, verse 46, for example, would be difficult for us to fulfill. Every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. Fly over to Jerusalem each morning, uh, find the temple courts, meet together as St. Jude's, fly home again. And neither, by the way, is this the only part of Scripture which talks about what it means to be a church and what we do as a church. But nonetheless, there is much we can learn when we look at this snapshot of the early church. And I want to particularly draw our attention to, to kind of two big things that we see happening in chapter 2. And they're both about how the church grows. And the first one is we see the church grow in number as the gospel is proclaimed. So there should be a slide for this one, thanks. There it is. Gospel proclamation is how the church grows. In Acts 2, of course, remember last week, the Holy Spirit comes down. There's an earthquake. We, had, we even got you an earthquake just so you could feel like you were part of Acts 2. Do you know how hard that is to organise for you guys? And what we see is the gospel go out radically to all the nations. That is how God grows his church. That is the message that Peter gives in verse 38. Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Those who accepted his message were baptised, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And by the way, that wasn't just a one-off thing. We read in verse 47, towards the end, and the Lord added to their number daily, daily, those who were being saved. And so what we see in Acts is that the Holy Spirit equips God's church for the mission of growing his church. And he does that as the gospel is proclaimed. That's the way the church grows in number. And what we see as we study the book of Acts together is we see two things about the gospel. First is, it is radically exclusive, while at the same time, secondly, being radically inclusive. Radically exclusive and radically inclusive at the same time. What do I mean by that? Well, it's exclusive in that the gospel says there is salvation, but it is only found in the name of Jesus Christ. That was Peter's message, remember? Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's an exclusive claim. The gospel isn't just, there is forgiveness of sins, great. No, it's, there is forgiveness of sins, but it is only in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll see next week, not stealing anyone's thunder. Now, who's preaching next week? No, we've got a missionary. I can steal as much thunder as we want. They're heading back overseas. They won't know. Uh, it gets Peter and the apostles in serious trouble because they get told off for preaching in the name of Jesus. By the way, in our relativistic and multicultural society where all religions and ideas are equal, it can still get you into great trouble by making this exclusive claim that salvation is found in Christ alone. That only Jesus can forgive sins. 
And we need to be, just be aware that, that it will mean that sometimes in your workplaces and sometimes at uni, you will be marginalised. That's the new normal. There are places where, as a Christian, you'll be ignored. You'll be ridiculed. And so I think we shouldn't be surprised. It can be uncomfortable, I agree. But this is not new. Christians have faced this since the very beginning. And for some Christians, it will actually cost them their lives. All but one of the apostles are killed for preaching Christ. And the stats, which are hard to get exactly right, but somewhere between 7,000 to 8,000 Christians each year are killed for proclaiming Christ. It is still as controversial today as it was then. So don't be surprised. I like that phrase, non-anxious presence. Be that non-anxious presence. But secondly, we, we also understand that the gospel is radically inclusive. And what I mean by that is it transcends ethnic and cultural boundaries. In other words, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is for all people. No matter what your gender, no matter what your age, no matter what your tribe, no matter what your tongue, no matter what your nation, it is not just for people who look like us and sound like us and speak like us and have our culture. It's for people who are not like us, who speak different languages and who have different cultures. It is for all the nations of the world. It is for China. It is for India. It is for Africa. It is for Persia. It's even for New Zealand. This is how radical God's love is. I'm starting trouble, I know. It's God's gospel, not mine. And so we as a church are called to do this both exclusive and inclusive thing. This radical thing, this politically incorrect thing, this outrageous thing, this dangerous thing of telling the world how much Jesus loves them. That is how God grows his church, as the gospel goes out. And that is what we are called to do as God's church. We are called to continually proclaim the gospel of Jesus. But secondly, we see the church grow spiritually by focused devotion. So that's the next slide. Focused devotion. Everyone's like, what the... What's going on here? Okay, it's just a cute picture of a pig and a chicken. We'll get around to that. In Luke, uh, in chapter 2, verse 42, Luke explains four things that the church is devoted to particularly. And that verse 42 is kind of like a summary for the next little section. Notice here that they devote themselves to... You can put, this, you can put it back, we'll get there in a second. Leave the... Pretty picture there for the moment. Uh, that devoted themselves to the apostles' preaching and to the fellowship, sorry, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, these, of course, are not the only things that the church does, but Luke tells us and focuses on these things. These are the things that Christians were devoted to when they first started meeting together. And I want to spend a bit of time looking at that word devoted. Uh, the word there means to persist in something. 
to be busily engaged in, to be dedicated to, not just involved, but deeply, deeply invested. Now, one of the things uh, I used to do when I used to go cycling was, in the last 10 kilometres of the ride, I would start thinking about the cafe that we were going to go to. It was the thing that kept me going. And I'd picture, often in my mind, a bacon and egg roll with, with, with barbecue sauce. I'm thinking of it now. I said, ooh. <laughs> that will keep me going. See, when you have a bacon and egg roll, the chicken is involved, right? But the pig is invested. That's, that's what that word means. It means to be all in. Not just giving part of yourself, but giving all of yourself. So when it comes to God's church, we're saying, don't be a chicken, be a pig. Now you get the picture, right? You'll never think of Peppa Pig the same way ever again. I've, I've ruined Peppa Pig, but for a good reason, hopefully. Uh, the church is devoted. It is all in. And you can, go, you can go to the next slide so we don't spend too much time looking at that cute picture. Uh, the four things that, 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 that uh, Luke highlights for us. The first one is devoted to the apostles' teaching. In other words, the church is deeply committed not just to listening and understanding God's word, but actually obeying and living it out as well. That, that is what the shape of the early church is like. Uh, Paul, uh, one of the other apostles, writes in 1 Thessalonians 2, and for this reason we constantly thank God that when you receive from us the word of God's message, that is the apostles' teaching, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. See, there's two things there. It's not just that it's the Word of God, but that Word of God transforms you. It does its work in you. It's active. That is what God's Word does. And so as a church, we are committed to upholding God's Word because it is how God speaks to it. It is His authority. It directs and shapes who we are as His people, both individually but indeed as a whole body as well, as 4pm at Carlton. It's how we understand who God is and how we are to respond. That's what God's Word is. Scripture, it, it compels our conscience. It determines doctrinal truth. It tells us how to live and love, which is why each week, what do we do? Well, we have the Scriptures read... We have our preaching on the scriptures. We have our small groups where, what do we do? We, part of that time is opening God's word. And we want to encourage people in daily personal Bible reading. Why? Because we want to be devoted to God's word. A mark of our church. Secondly, notice that they're devoted to fellowship. Now, one of the problems with the word fellowship is We've kind of watered it down, and fellowship now means uh, a cup of tea or coffee, often instant, with fellow Christians where you talk about the weather or your local football team. That, that's kind of what we mean, fellowship after the service, right? That's not what the word actually means. In the original context, the word actually is much closer to a business partnership than a cup of tea. 
So you can still have your tea, by the way, don't get me wrong. Go down to salt, that's a uh, sea salt, great thing to do. But partnership is something much more profound, much more deep, much more involved. Don Carson calls it the self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. That, that we're kind of in it together and heading somewhere together. That is what that word fellowship means. And so true fellowship is a true partnership of mutual sharing, of giving and receiving. And we are partners, we are fellowshipping in God's vision for his gospel. That's the kind of enterprise that we are all part of. And partnering in the gospel is not just how people become Christians, partnering in the gospel is how people grow as Christians. Because they grow in Christians, uh, grow as Christians as they're insure, the assurance of their salvation grows, as they are reminded weekly and daily of the, the confidence that we have in the work of Christ in his death and resurrection. Not our work, Christ's work. That's what the gospel reminds us. And so, in other words, we must be devoted to one another to encourage each other to be more like Jesus. That's what fellowship is ultimately like. Not just getting to know each other, but that next step of seeking to grow each other so we're more like Christ. What that means is we don't come to church as an audience to just receive something. Now, we, we, we do receive things when we come to church. I'm not saying we don't. But that's far too limiting, far too small a picture of what it means to have fellowship. Secondly, uh, to be involved in church is not like an employee. Do you know when you, your boss comes and they pay you money to do certain things? You're a bit more invested than an audience, but you're there because they pay you, right? Now, we are there to be deeply committed as partners, to invest in each other, to care for each other, to look out for each other, as together we have this gospel vision for God's church. So let me offer you three ways in which we can, we can kind of, at 4 p.m., work to do that better, to grow in our fellowship for each other. The first one is, uh, fellowship or partnership means investing in people. Uh, as a church at St. Jude's, we have a steady stream of visitors and newcomers. Uh, on average, 70 people a week will visit this church, our church. Now, not just the 4 p.m. congregation, but lots do visit 4 p.m. as well. Now, generally, I think there is a warm welcome for people when they come to church, a lovely sense of community, but there is always a danger, and particularly as our 4pm starts to grow and develop its own kind of identity and history, that you start hanging out with just the people that you know. You know your Sunday posse? Squad goals, you know, that, that kind of little group that you hang out with each week, the same people, you sit. We've now got our own, so we've got our own seats now, right? We've been here long enough that we now know kind of, I'm kind of a front-left person or a front-right person or a back-left person. You're nodding, because, yeah, that's, that's where I normally sit. And the danger is we stop thinking about other people. So we need to invest not just inviting people to church, but caring for those who come through our doors. Sharing the gospel with them. We're running Christian Explore course at the moment. Super exciting talking to someone perhaps who you've never met before to make them feel welcomed. Investing in people. Secondly, we need to invest in our time. Uh, we constantly have a refrain that we're time poor. 
And I think that that's partly true, but I think the other side of that coin is that we are option rich. There are so many things competing for your time. That is why it's hard often to make decisions. Being at Bible study, serving each other, costs time. And we as a culture have made efficiency a virtue. But love is not efficient. Love is slow and needs patience, and therefore patience needs time. And so we need to be committed to investing our time in the service of each other and God as we partner together. That's what the early church did. We'll have a look at verse uh, 46 with me. When they had no other commitments, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Is that what it says? When nothing else was planned in the diary, now it says, every day. They continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They opened up their homes for each other and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. I'm not saying we have to meet every day, but I am saying we need to commit our time to other people and to God in fellowship and partnership. Uh, Thirdly, partnership means investing our money. God knows your heart. Uh, God knows your ability to give. God desires that you be joyful about your giving, no matter how rich or poor you are. It says, God loves a cheerful giver. It doesn't say God loves a cheerful non-giver or God loves a grumpy giver. Joyful in giving. Responsibly, joyfully, generously, sacrificially. Look what happens in verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who is in need. We're not trying to start a communist society. The point is saying is that there aren't banks to keep your money and so you would keep most of your valuables as valuables. But if someone was in need, they would generous, uh, generously and sacrificially give and sell things so that somebody else would be, would be looked after. That's the mark of fellowship there. And your financial partnership in the gospel here at St. Jude's doesn't just support the mission of this congregation, it also supports other gospel work at UniChurch and on the housing estates and with our global mission partners as the gospel goes out to the nations. So let's strive to be a church that is dedicated not to just mere tea and coffee fellowship, but to that deeper gospel-centered partnership. Like a pig, right? All in. Thirdly, notice that they're devoted to hospitality. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, that little phrase there, breaking of bread, is a little hard initially to understand because it could mean one of two things. Uh, Sometimes the word, little phrase, breaking of bread, uh, is referring to the Lord's Supper to communion which we know the church does and the church does regularly and is a good thing for for churches to do. But the little phrase, breaking of bread, was also a common Jewish way of starting a meal. Just an ordinary meal that you would have uh, family uh, and perhaps close friends. The Jewish custom was to start with the breaking of bread. That was the way you opened your meal. And I think that's what we see here, particularly in light of verse uh, 46, where they broke bread in their homes 
In other words, it's a, a moment of hospitality where their homes are opened up. Because who you eat with in that culture was really, really important. And in many cultures today, who you eat with is really, really important. In fact, I found this great uh, map, which I couldn't find for today, where they showed you if you turn up to someone's house, should you expect to be fed? Right? And what happened is, if you lived anywhere kind of uh, just north of the Mediterranean, south, Africa, India, Eastern Europe, Mediterranean, the answer was, yes, you'll get fed. If you're polite, ordinary, boring white people north of that, no. And the kind of, the further north you went, the less likely. So the Scandinavians, you're not getting nothing. <laughs> don't, don't. Good Ikea, good furniture, but different hospitality. But it's the culture of the thing. To share bread is to welcome someone. It's to say, you are part of our family. That's part of the culture of the early church. It actually says you are family, which is a very powerful metaphor. There are at least 26 references in the New Testament which speak of Christians meeting in homes. Not just in kind of at the temple, but in homes. Now, we live in an increasingly fragmented and disconnected world. Uh, social media and other technology gives us the illusion that we are connected. Uh, here is my iPhone. I counted it yesterday. I have 15 apps by which I can contact you. Well, if you're on the same app as me, right? 15. And I could even call you if, you know, if, if you're under 40, that's not something you do. I understand, right? I'm trying to be culturally right. Over 40, we're happy to call. Under 40, don't ever use the phone, whatever you do. Uh, in spite of these 15 apps on my phone, we are a culture with fewer and fewer friends, and we have an epidemic of loneliness. The UK has actually put a commissioner of loneliness in the government to try and work out how do we help people kind of connect more? And we've replaced community with connections. What do we have as a picture in the early church? Eating together in people's homes. This new thing called face-to-face -face communication. I'm going to break with this radical stuff, right, guys? Where you talk to someone with your phone face down. It's this virtual reality without the virtual, right? <laughs> reality, reality. Family meals, dates, celebrations. These are things where we eat together already, right? But being a Christian family means we should have family meals. We should have family events. We should gather together as family, face to face, phones down. In other words, a big part of church is actually eating together, spending life together. Why? Because hospitality promotes deeper relational connections. If you want to get to know someone, have a meal with them. Not just talk, but have a meal, because it slows you down. It's inefficient, isn't it? But love is inefficient. It's actually part of the reason why we've incorporated meals into the of our church life. Why do we regularly have post 4 p.m. dinners and after uni church dinners and after 10 a.m. lunches? Because we want to make these spaces for people because it's not culturally something we do that well. Hospitality is a great way of getting to know people, a great way of opening up your house and sharing. 
particularly we have so many people who live in single-person house households. Now, what's great about that is you can live as neat or as messy as you like. The bathroom is always available, right? This is the good thing. The bad news is it is terribly isolating. It is lonely. We're not created to be alone. So we need to work really hard as a community to, to try and foster those hospitality moments. To think about share house living. I mean, as rents go up, this is a good excuse, right? But it's much better because we are built for relationships. We are built for community. We are built for the breaking of bread. Well, thirdly, we see the church devoted to prayer. Now, it's really obvious as you read through Acts that the early church was a praying church. Uh, prior to Pentecost, what are they doing? They're in the upper room and they're praying without ceasing, it says. After Pentecost, what are they doing? They're praying without ceasing. Part of their prayer in the temple, when they gather together, they pray. Verse 47, as they pray, they are praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. God's church is always a praying church. Because the way of recognising that, it's God's church. It reminds us that we are his church. That we are dependent upon him, our heavenly father, for all things. And there are so many things that we can pray for as a church. Let me give you 12. That way they're very brief. 12 things quickly. One, that as a church, we would hunger for studying the scriptures and that that would shape us so that we can guide and guard and care for one another. Secondly, that we would be open and caring and have meaningful relationships, that that would be normal and remaining anonymous would be strange. Let us pray that this would be a church where God's word is preached carefully and that the Spirit will work as it does so. We can pray that the leaders of our church would remain above reproach, be kept from temptation, complacency, idols and worldliness. We can pray that our church's songs would teach us to biblically confess and lament and praise together. We can pray that our church's prayers would be infused with biblical ambitions, with honesty and humility. We can pray that those adult members among us are interested and caring for younger members, for the kids and youth, and not just leave it to the youth group and kids' church. We can pray that as a church will grow in being distinct from the world, both in love and holiness. We should pray that we can share the gospel this week where God has placed us and that people would come to Christ. We should pray that we will be prepared for discrimination and persecution and remember to respond with love and not curse. We should pray that our giving should be faithful and joyful 
and consistent and sacrificial. And finally, we can pray that we would be good and do good in our workplaces and in our places of study and take the gospel to places it has not yet been. Most of all, we should pray that we as a church here at St Jude's would seek to glorify the risen Jesus in all that we do. Because we long to be a church that grows, not for our glory, but for Christ's glory. There is something just so beautiful and joyful when someone becomes a follower of Jesus. It's good news. And we should be a church that rejoices when people grow spiritually, when they trust Jesus more and more, when they're devoted to Jesus more deeply. As we open God's word, as we enjoy deep and meaningful fellowship together, as we break bread together, and as we pray. Let me pray that we would be devoted to these things as God's church. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this picture of your church. A church that starts so small, but yet is powerful because of who it worships. Father, we thank you so much for your word, that it may shape and equip us for living lives that please you. Father, we thank you for the fellowship that we enjoy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to build each other up, to care for each other, to love each other. Help us to be hospitable, to open our homes and hearts to each other as we eat and pray and share together. And Father, make us a church that prays regularly and often and deeply for all things that give you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.